Because I Could Not Stop for Death by Emily Dickinson was posthumously published in 1890. The poem follows a narrator as they encounter death and look back on life. In this episode, we will discuss how the poems came to be published, the themes throughout, and the meter and form, and how familiar it may sound. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello! I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. Today we'll be discussing another poem, Because I Could Not Stop for Death by Emily Dickinson. So to start out, I think you brought up a great point before we started recording, and that was how she didn't publish any of her poems. Yeah, so after she died in like 1889 or around there, they published, they found her poems and published all of them under her name, but she didn't actually publish any of them. And there's actually some question of whether they were finished or not. Nearly 1,800 poems discovered by her sister after her death, which is insane. Yeah, this one's actually numbered 479, which you thought was a lot. Yeah, and then now 1,800. Three times that number. And last week we said Shakespeare wrote a lot. And now we have Emily Dickinson who wrote a lot just for herself. Yeah, well, writing can be pretty, like, releasing. You know, they didn't have, like, music to listen to, so she just composed, I guess. Well, I guess they probably had music, but not, like, you know, internet and stuff. They didn't have this podcast to listen to. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, though, that they were all posthumously published. That she didn't actually put her name on it necessarily to be published. Yeah, it kind of begs the question of whether she wanted them published or not, which obviously she didn't get a say in that because she was dead. I would kind of assume since they were all in her closet, like stuffed away, that she didn't want people to read them. Well, maybe she didn't think they were good enough to be published. This could be like an issue with her like uh, own self-confidence as a writer, maybe. That's a very possible scenario as well. And I don't know, we I haven't read eight, nearly 1,800 poems of hers, so maybe there's only like two or three good ones. Now, I'm sure they're all pretty good. Say, I've read quite a few of hers, but yeah, I've definitely not read 1,800 <laughs> poems. I don't think I've read 1,800 poems in my life. No, no, definitely not. Less than 100. Maybe around 100. I mean, I've read a whole book of poems. I didn't do that, you see. So I think we're going to follow a similar format, and we'll read it stanza by stanza. If we need to talk a little bit about... The format, it's four lines, and then a break in between, so that six stands as a four. Yeah, so 24 lines in total. Uh, I think we can briefly discuss the punctuation here for a second. There's not a lot of periods, but there's a lot of dashes. It seems that dashes kind of replaced a lot of commas in places. And, and it I could just be where she was kind of referencing line breaks just in her own writing, and not necessarily that it was actually punctuation. It definitely could be. I see your point, but... in Poems, like, dashes are considered punctuation. So if a poet puts a dash, or even, you can see this a lot in Jane Austen's writing, actually, she put a lot of dashes in her works, and especially in her juvenile or her early works, you can definitely see, like, a ton of dashes. Like, she was just crazy for hyphens. So it, it was a form of punctuation, and less of, like, what we see a dash as today. It was kind of almost like a comma, but just fancier, I guess, more classy. <laughs> she was hungry for hyphens. She was hungry for hyphens. <laughs> classier commas Classy, you know We're something about it i like the hyphen you know it's a very very aesthetically pleasing piece of punctuation i agree i like hyphens they look nice are they m dashes or n dashes i don't know the difference <laughs> um it's the length of it so yeah, the I, usual I, hyphen is just like a single character length an n dash is as long as an n and an m dash is as long as an m there's different uses for them i have no idea i don't even know if that was a, like a difference in her time when she wrote these. 
That's fair. They all look the same on this format we're looking at. Well, obviously, this is a document that's been, like, edited and transcribed from her original works. I would like to see the original manuscripts, actually, and see how she wrote the works, because that would probably give us the best feel for it. But I imagine most modern works try to stay true to the original poet's words as they put them on the page, because even how the poem is arranged is very important. Word placement can be just as important as word choice in some cases. And speaking on word choice, it's very interesting to see which ones she capitalizes. You're exactly correct as well. So in the title, most of them are lowercase, except for because, I, and then death, which kind of insinuates that death is a character in and of itself. Yes, there's definitely some personification of death here. And especially in the next sentence, the, the second line. I guess we'll just read the first, the first stanza and then we'll get into the, we'll break it down a little more. I'll just go ahead and do it. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. And so to get into that a little bit, it's just interesting how it does personify death because he kindly stopped for me. And then it goes on and the carriage is capitalized and ourselves and immortality. Both of those are capitalized. And so there are some hundreds of essays that have broken down her punctuation and capitalization and the meanings behind that. The first word of every line is capitalized. Yeah, so that's not as important, but the, I just meant and immortality as immortality. Yeah, I was listing yeah. on the words. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Using my Oxford commas. You, you gotta like state those, you know, comma. <laughs> so yeah, death is definitely personified in this first stanza, and I feel throughout the rest of the poem as well. We get more of the personification by the word ourselves being capitalized because the narrator is personifying both themselves and death, like in that, like, kind of like the we, you know, Sotros there. <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping that in, our little Spanish <laughs> history coming in. I don't know if it's necessarily personifying themselves, though, because the narrator, you would already think, is a character. Oh, for sure. I, it's an implied character, yeah. Yeah, so it is still personifying death with that, but not necessarily them as well. Well, maybe. I guess I could see a case for either way, because we're kind of understanding that there is a character here, because maybe a poem can be in many different forms. It can be a remarking, can be like a third-person narration. It can be just like a random, like, disembodied voice. But in here, we're getting a definite, like, I am with death. The carriage held, but just ourselves. We're both in this carriage together. And I think it kind of also implies a, like, power of death here, because, like, it, the carriage held, but just ourselves and immortality. Like, he's just sitting in the back, too. Like, death and me are here, but immortality's here, too. And that, that's very powerful, I think. The carriage is kind of unassuming in that, like, first part, and then that last end of this stanza is and immortality. It's two lines, and I think that's significant as well. It's the shortest line here, and it also just has some power to it, especially with being capitalized. I agree, and I think if we're going to break down this stanza right now, I think you can interpret the theme of the poem in two different ways. So you can read it literally, as in, she is dying. Death is here for her. But also, I think it could be a take on grief. It does say, because I could not stop her death. So that seems like she could not stop. She didn't want to stop. She wanted to keep going. But I think it also, you could read it as surviving grief as well. She could not stop for death. She had to keep working even through her grieving process. But then I, I disagree with that reading because she's very nice. She's very polite to death here. She has a very passive look here. So be, um, he kindly stopped for me. That's not something you say to an enemy that you're trying to avoid or you're actively like unseeking. That's something you're accepting. He kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves in immortality. You don't like state the immortality part. Like that's something you want. People inherently, I think, want immortality. That's like there's a whole fountain of youth. You can like look at that. Like it's a it's a thing in legends. So I think that it's supposed to be a little positive. It's supposed to be a little accepting, is what I'm saying. I think you could read it that way, but also you could take it sarcastically. Yeah, like, he that's true. kindly stopped for me because I could not stop for him. He's like, nope, come on, it's your turn. 
You're, you're correct. I, I don't guess. think he is supposed to be rude. I don't think it's supposed to be an enemy. It could be her accepting death, but it does seem like she didn't want to die because I could not stop for death. That's that's true. Maybe we'll get to the answer in the rest of the poem. <laughs> and then the last line with the am- immortality, I think that could be referring to the biblical everlasting life. I think you're absolutely right that it definitely is very heavily alluded here. We get definitely heavily, heavy illusions between the Bible and a lot of writings, actually, but I think especially in this poem. I so, really like biblical illusions in literature, actually. They're very interesting. And I think it's interesting, too, how sometimes they're so underplayed. Like mm-hmm. this, the immortality, you don't necessarily immediately like, oh, everlasting life, but they don't have to spell it out for you. Those illusions can be so subtle. Uh-huh. And I really think it does go to show like how big of a role religion has played in our society, just its building and like even this poem we're reading just, oh, like that's religion because it's everlasting life. So on to the next stanza. We solely drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. Right there, and I just want to say civilite because the way, yeah, because yeah. the rhyme scheme is kind of like slant rhymes throughout most of it, and so it makes me want to go civilite for a way. That is definitely the way I read it in my head. I know that's technically like not correct or whatever because like grammar, but I prefer civilite. So this one isn't as much capitalized until that last line for his civility. All of that is capitalized, and so I think that is a definite choice she made to capitalize things. And I know some people are like, oh, she did it willy-nilly. I think it was definitely intentional. It definitely seems willy-nilly, but that's because I think with the poem format, there's just so many things that she wanted to stress in so few words. So I I bring up format a lot because it's something that interests me. And I think in the poem format, through this like genre of literature, you have to use less words because it's arranged differently. It's not like a big block of text, obviously. I'm not like, you know what a poem is, guys. But (laughs) I mean, if you want to get into long poems, there are epics. Yes, and there that's are. Insane. And those suck. But there's definitely a heavy stressing whenever a word is capitalized in a poem, especially one that is short. It brings so much more stress to that word and does a whole lot in so few words because it really does just make you think about it more. I agree. So going line by line with the we slowly drove, he knew no haste. That to me seemed like death didn't come quickly. But if we also want to do my flip side argument about grief, it's like that grief stays with you for a long time and that you just can't necessarily get rid of it super fast. Yeah, I don't know. There's a very interesting reading of this poem I take where it's a woman who, or not a woman, but it's just, I guess probably a woman because the narrator or the writer was a woman, but it doesn't really matter. It's a narrator uh, marking on their life's journey. In the first two stanzas here, we're setting up for the rest of the poem where they're like kind of going through life. But it's kind of drawing a comparison, like death's always with us. We're always traveling through life with this thing on our back. We slowly drove is kind of the narrator progressing through life. We knew no haste. We're just going through life. And I had put away my labor and my leisure too. They're kind of growing up. Like, and I, I think this kind of like detracts from my argument because and I had put away my labor and my leisure too is kind of her accepting death. So maybe the first two stanzas set up the rest of the poem because we do get into the later stanzas, like the next stanza is kind of where we start going through the cycles of life. And we'll get into that more next stanza. So for the my labor, my leisure too, I thought it's saying that at death, you don't get to keep doing your job and your hobbies. So labor, job, leisure, hobbies. Like you don't get to keep working and keep having fun. It has ended. Yeah, for sure. Something an English teacher told me once about this line was that labor and leisure probably would have been the same. As a woman working, they would do a lot of needlework, and that would be labor and leisure. Like, that is what a woman would do. Like, that's, like, not to be, like, stereotypical male in the 1890s, but that is woman's work. 
I think it's actually interesting, too, because then it kind of works with, like, my labor, my leisure. Oh, she just had to put down her needling. Exactly. It's kind of a nice line. And I can agree with you that for his civility does seem like he's nice, because with the kindly and civility, you can get that he is not necessarily a dark character as death is kind of described in a lot of things. Yeah, kind. Of, it's kind of like she's welcoming an old friend is kind of the way I get. Like, his civility, maybe not an old friend as much. I don't know. It's so weird. Like, it's just, it's a nice death. Like, I want to picture death as nice by the way she's describing him. All I can think when you say welcome death as an old friend is the tale of the three brothers from Harry Potter. <laughs> and the third brother welcome death as an old friend. Passed his cloak along to his son. <laughs> so going on into the next stanza. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. So yeah, she completely throws out the rhyme scheme in this one. Poems aren't always about rhyme. You get good rhythm, and I think the hyphens kind of help set up that rhythm, so you get the uh, pauses in the shorter lines to kind of make up for the long length of the first line, especially like this. that first line kind of throws this stanza to a curveball because it has to be four lines because that's the rest of the poem. <laughs> Form is a very difficult thing to keep as a poet, so I don't blame her at all. So this one... Seems kind of like it goes quickly through her life. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. That's all childhood. So maybe this is her... You know how a lot of people say they their life flashes before their eyes when they die? Maybe this is that. This is kind of her saying, like, I saw everything at once. Because you're right, it's very fast. They pass the school, there's children playing, pass the fields of gazing grain, pass the setting sun. Which I want to talk a little bit more about the fields of gazing grain. For sure. They kind of said, I had to look it up a little bit more, but in some essays, they kind of hinted that that is when the crops are flourishing and then you can just keep harvesting without having to replant and regrow as much. And so I think that is definitely pointing out adulthood and it's supposed to represent growing of life where you're just kind of flourishing and you aren't still learning and growing as much. And then, yeah, definitely setting sun in any literature. If the sun is setting, it is the end of something. Oh, for sure. It's such a huge symbol of an end. The end of the day, the end of the life. Setting sun always means the end. And I think it's kind of interesting in this stance. I agree with you 100% on all those, like, interpretations as well. And I didn't actually know the thing about the gazing grain. I'm sure I've heard it before, but I didn't actively know it. I should have done more research. I apologize. <laughs> but in this stance, I think it's important to note we're getting the we here. We pass the school. We pass the fields. We pass the setting sun. And we get the repetition here. So that's another... Um, that's another Poetry device, yes. Where they repeat. Dickinson gets the repetition there, and it really does a lot for this poem. And you kind of get reminded, like over and over again that hey i'm with death here don't forget that death's still here guys just kind of keeping you in the loop yeah i agree so then moving on to the next stanza or rather he passed us the dews drew quivering and chill for only gossamer my gown my tippet only tool so this one's interesting to me because she's also personifying the sun here, which I think you could also see a lot with egyptian mythology how the sun is a god and it kind of also works with your death I believe that's right. That is right. Ra, mm -hmm. some god. Um, I don't know a whole lot anymore. I knew some. I only knew it from Rick Riordan's writing. <laughs> I, did, I read another series or something that had some like influences of the Egyptian the gods. The Cain Chronicles. That's the, what it's it called. It was the Cain Chronicles. Definitely check that out. Very good to read. Rick Riordan's a fantastic author. But you're right. And this kind of whole paragraph is about death. So we do get that son, like, or rather he passed us. So it's kind of like... In the stanza before, like, they passed the sun is kind of like she died, and then the sun passed them is kind of like the life kept moving on. She died, and that ultimately wasn't very important. 
I agree with that 100%. And especially with the next line, the dews drew quivering and chill. That is like cold and a corpse. That's what it makes me think of. Dew is coming back and like you aren't going with it and you're getting cold. You're still out there. And then we'll get into the next stanza too, but it really just hints that she is a corpse. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm fairly sure Gossamer is a burial fabric. That's what I also thought. I'm not 100% sure. I tried looking it up and I couldn't find a lot. And then I wanted to point out the tippet. That is a scarf or shawl. Historically, I'm assuming for this, historically it's connected to a hood, but in modern times now it's worn a lot by clergymen. So I think you could also see it again as being a funeral. I guess if I were in the 1890s, I would understand these references a lot more maybe, but I definitely get the feeling this is a funeral happening. Just with the fancy clothes alone, it's kind of like, yeah, it's a funeral. You only get dressed your Sunday best for like funeral or a wedding. I agree. I really think that is it. And it seems also like it's very simple fabrics. Like they wouldn't want to dress her in ornate fabrics like people do nowadays because they want to pass that on. Yeah. Another relic of the times, I guess. 1890s kids would get it. <laughs> Only 90s kids. <laughs> 1890s. I do think it's also interesting about the relic. We've talked a lot in different literature courses about grave robbings. And how people would do that for if they were buried with gold. And so maybe to limit that, they used very simple fabrics. It's seen a lot with, like, Frankenstein. That was a lot of grave robbing. There is some Poe ones as well. Definitely makes sense. I have never read Frankenstein, so I really can't uh, say. But I do know they steal dead bodies to, like, chop up and make into a human, like, like monster. That's that's what Frankenstein's made of, is all I know about no, dead no, bodies. No, no, no. Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein's the doctor, of course. There you go. He earned that PhD. <laughs> Uh, or MD? An M- is he know. an MD? Oh, <laughs> I'll Google what Frankenstein's credentials are and get back to y'all. All right, on to the fifth stanza, second to last here. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. So there again, we have the repetition. She repeats ground both times. And this, I really look into the symbols a lot, but a house that seemed a swelling of the ground... And I think that is where her body is now housed. It is talking about the grave. It's talking about like a headstone, a plot, and that the roof was scarily visible, the cornice. I think that's really showing the ornate roof of a headstone. I definitely think there is no other interpretation of this stanza. It is definitely talking about her final resting place. And especially with the house. It's not a home. It's a house, which I think is a very mm-hmm. intentional wording choice. I agree. It just kind of is where her body ended up, you know? Like, it's not like where she wanted to be. Obviously, she wants to be alive, but she can't do that. And she's kind of accepted that. And I think that tone that the poem reflects her accepting the death. And I would like to just point out that these, the last three stanzas, including this one, are kind of the stages of her life. We get all of her life, and then we get these two stanzas focused on her death. And I think that kind of set this poem up as more being about death than anything else. This poem is first and foremost a death poem. It talks about death, and we'll get more into, like, what that means after we finish the last stanza. I did actually want to point out before we get to that last stanza. Oh, for sure. That swelling, roof, and cornice are all capitalized as the second letters. And I think that's supposed to draw them all together. So it's not actually a real house. It's showing that it is her grave. Just to show, like, highlight that symbol just a little bit more. She's really putting the emphasis on it. Just so it wasn't like, oh, there was an actual roof? I agree completely. So the last stanza. Since then... Tis centuries, and yet, feel shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Again, I want to say eternity. (laughs) And so this one, I think, again, is pointing towards that everlasting life. That she has found that everlasting life, and she is reminiscing not on the day of her death. 
not necessarily her life, which is interesting. Yeah, for sure, because she says that since then to centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day. Like, she's, she still feels that she's in the same day that she first realized that, oh, yeah, oh, crap, I'm dying, because it says, I first surmised the horse's heads were toward eternity. So a lot of the other lines... Or a lot of the other stanzas aren't as connected as this last stanza. I think this last stanza goes together completely, whereas the other stanzas kind of fit together loosely. So this last stanza is basically one big sentence. Since then, since the last stanza, to centuries, and yet, feel shorter than the day I first surmised the horse's heads were towards eternity. So it's kind of saying that it's been centuries since I last thought about death, but like, I'm here, and I think we're definitely supposed to get sheep made it to heaven or hell, I guess. I actually want to point out what surmised means as well. It's suppose something is true without evidence to confirm it. So even now, she still is not 100% sure if death was a real person, if she's actually dead which I think is a very interesting take on it as well. I wonder if that's a limitation. She just kind of guessed because she, I mean, obviously she was alive when she wrote this, I imagine. I would assume. <laughs> I would assume so, which makes it actually a little bit more interesting to the layer that it was posthumously published because mm -hmm. it does feel a bit like she's talking to you beyond the grave. Yeah, that's true. Creepy dead woman poem. And it does reference even the first line or the first stanza with the horse's head, the carriage. And that's what it's talking about with the carriage is a direct reference to that. And so even if she is surmising it and she's not sure if it's 100% correct, she's still referencing things we saw at the beginning. And I think it's important to note that it feels shorter than the day. She's literally hasn't been experiencing time which i think is also kind of otherworldly and kind of a feeling that a lot of people assume about death is kind of like time just kind of fades away that's an interesting take i kind of saw it as life goes by fast where it feels shorter than the day where you can be like wow the day went by so fast because you had so many things going on and so you don't realize time's passing you by not necessarily that time ceased to exist okay interesting I'm with it. I'm like with that as well. I like better. <laughs> well, I just, because it just flows a lot better with the first line a little bit. So I definitely wanted to point out that in poetry, a lot of the times, whenever a teacher asks you, what is the theme? You could say death or life and be right like 90% of the time. I, I would wager 100% of the time you would be right. And as long as you're just like, oh, I don't know, this line, you know, kind of talks about when, like, oh, that's lively. Like in the, your English teacher will love you if you say that <laughs> phrase I just said to you. That is like gold right there, you know? Just BS until it works. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> but I think especially with death being in the first line, which a lot of poems we've said before, they just take their name from the first line, it just makes it a little bit easier, especially whenever they weren't named. These were just numbered. Well, especially like Emily Dickinson not publishing any of these. Like that definitely throws a curveball in the naming scheme as well. But most of the time, they'll just take the first line. That's the name of the whole poem. And so with it being death in the title, you can assume, oh, we're going to read about death. And there's actually a like genre or subgenre of poems just called death poems. It's a human experience we don't necessarily know a lot about. Even if we experience it with through other people, we personally do not know what death is like until it comes for you. And it's not like you can write about it after you're dead, unless you have like a near-death experience and survive it, but still that's not complete. And a lot of the times writers like to write about what they don't know. They're trying to put what they don't know into what they do know, like feelings and words that they can actually relate to. It kind of seems to me like the most extreme form of escapism. You can invent different worlds, but you really like, 
this is the author trying to really face what is going to happen eventually. So I guess it's like escapism through facing your problems in a way, which is very scary. <laughs> scary and healthy. Way to face your problems. <laughs> way to go, Emily. So to end off on a happier note. Mrs. Dickinson, I apologize. I think it's Miss. She was never married. I, I don't know Dickinson's life. Sorry. Sorry, Miss Dickinson. Yeah, I guess we can talk a little bit about it. She was never married. There's a whole show about her now on Apple TV. Some people think she might have been a lesbian. So to end off on a happier note than the all-encompassing thought of death, we wanted to talk a little bit about the meter and form and how familiar it might sound. So the stanzas all go in a four beat, three beat, which does kind of get broken as you go farther. But there's also a theme song of a certain TV show that also goes like that. So I'm going to kind of sing along and you guys will get a little sneak peek for the uh, Rip Van Winkle song. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Da -da -da. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. I don't, I don't know the beats there. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away... My labor and my leisure too for his civility. Pokemon! Dickinson! <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so I'm sorry for my atrocious singing, but we hope that made you smile a little bit. But it does seem to follow the same form and beat pattern as the Pokemon it theme song. It definitely shares the rhythm with the Pokemon, beats, <laughs> the Pokemon beat song. I want to know if that was a coincidence because it's just rhythm and like words like lining up very nicely. Or if the Pokemon theme songwriter was like, no, 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 I know the perfect poem I'm going to copy for this, guys, and copy the beat of this poem. I want to know. Or did Pokemon come first? Pokemon <laughs> did not come first. Maybe not likely, but possible. Nintendo has been around for a very long time, but technically Game Freak owned Pokemon first, and the games came before the show. Dickinson came in the 1800s. Sorry, guys. Dickinson was first. She could be a time traveler, all I'm saying. Join us next time as we read a poem by a person. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode, even if my singing was atrocious. I'm sure they enjoyed your singing just fine. I had a blast discussing these poems, and I really, really enjoy talking about form and genre, and I think the poems are giving me a great chance to do that, and I'm sorry if that's boring for anyone. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll reach out with your thoughts on this poem and Emily Dickinson in general. Maybe some of your favorite poems. We could do some little short episodes for our Buy Me A Coffee, because we are on Buy Me A Coffee. We have a membership open. There's some exclusive posts for members, um, some little upcoming events and sneak peeks that you can check out. And we hope you will support us. And we just thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com slash analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us, and subscribe to our podcast, and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well.